This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast 2021 New Year Special in which I traditionally look back at the big picture of the prior year and then forward into the next. However, I think we've all had enough of 2020 and heard enough already about 2020. On the other hand, 2021 brings with it all sorts of forebodings and fears. I don't wish to add to the noise right now, so for something different, I thought I would try and stir all of our grey matters and look at the deepest super strategic roots of what we are seeing today. So this is a super big picture special, and one out of the usual stream and not part of the usual sponsored programs. So if you want to hear more about fintech, tune into this rest of this year's show and skip this one. If you're already interested in the future of your society and civilization, or even the future of the West civilization, you might be interested in three themes that I will cover with three authors. Firstly, Oswald Spengler's The Decline of the West, written a century ago. Without a doubt, the centuries-long rise of Europe and European ways has utterly changed the whole world. In the same way, the decline, in absolute or relative terms, will be a major factor over the coming century. Second, all successful civilizations, as the first historiographer Ibn Khaldun describes, need a centripetal principle. What happens when this disappears? Already in the 19th century, Friedrich Nietzsche accurately foresaw that the decline of Christianity would inevitably unravel European society with problematic consequences. Thirdly, and finally, I will talk about an underrated and not so widely known 20th century thinker, Christopher Lash, who wrote on many topics, but I focus on two of his books in which he outlined problematic major cultural trends in America, the rise of emotionalism and the rise of elitism, which so dominate current discourse on all topics. By zooming out from the noise and stresses of today to three meta-topics, I hope I can enable you to visit some deeper ideas that you can pick and choose from and incorporate in your own maps of the world. Also, for those of you with an interest and stamina to listen, I'll give a shout-out later in the show about free giveaways and assistance, but more on that anon. As always, all links to articles and such will be in the show notes. Before we dive into our three themes, let's have a quick sit-rep to see what kind of phenomena we are trying to discover the roots of. Without understanding the roots of a problem, we're unlikely to develop an antidote. There is no doubt a new health issue. My sister was in the hospital as a result. However, months after I first covered the outbreak back in LFP 152, the risk is far more well determined. Back then, the two possible scenarios, not mutually incompatible of course, were on the one hand a panic reaction by governments, and on the other something more sinister. On the latter, at the time, any mention of the World Economic Forum's elite plans for a near-feudal Great Reset would get you denounced as a conspiracy theorist and potentially deplatformed from social media. This would have been despite, by the way, it being on their website. Funnily enough, after a few months, they took down their promotional video explaining that in the future you will own nothing but of course will be happy. The why that would make you so happy when oligarchs own everything was less clear. Talking of which, did you see that Gates is now the top landowner in the US, owning over an astonishing quarter of a million acres of farmland? You'll own nothing, but he and his buddies will own a lot. Three sections to this sit rep. Change in governance approach by governments, justification, and a dip into the economic consequences, the social consequences we are all familiar with. First, governance. In 2020, 
Western governments, in effect, launched coups against their people, destroying over a thousand years of progress of the rights of the populace against state tyranny. In the UK, the government has largely ruled by extra-parliamentary decree, by PR conference like some tin pot dictatorship and in some cases by tweet. Parliament, when it was eventually consulted, has shown itself to be supine with a continuation of what we saw during the hugely drawn out Brexiting process, an overturning of convention, which UK governments always relies on so heavily. UK governments has always relied, for example, on the opposition, um, uh, yeah, what's the word? Oh yes, the, on the opposition opposing. In 2020, however, there was no opposing. Whatever measure was proposed, the opposition simply agreed entirely other than adding that it wanted even harsher measures on the populace and that they would have done it earlier. Cronyism is through the roof, well into the cost of tens of billions of pounds in the UK as is fraud. A brigade the British Army is at war with its citizens, the 77th, quote, combating online disinformation, unquotes. However, the chief source of disinformation is the government and their lies, powerpoints and forecasts today are the new dodgy dossier. In one notable case, former Prime Minister May criticised the latest set of government lies as not just wrong, but known to be wrong when they were presented. The UK government, to pick a few examples, has in effect destroyed the hospitality and travel industries, nationalised railways and all but nationalised advertising. A stat I saw was that UK government's spending on advertising had increased by 5,000%, making big government the UK's biggest purchaser of advertising and many media outlets little more than outlets for state propaganda. We live in truly insane times. As I speak, troops occupy Washington DC, and in the UK, the government has spent a fortune of the people's money propagandising and petrifying the very people who are going to have to pay for being petrified. Three weeks to flatten the curve, the original narrative in the UK, when a novel virus appeared a year ago, looks more like tyranny without end. Human rights go out of the window. As I write today, Parliament votes on an outrageous government bill to quote Conservative MP David Davis, quotes, the covert human intelligence sources brackets criminal conduct brackets bill would continue the practice of children being sent into dangerous situations with minimal safeguards in place. It would also open the prospect of state-sanctioned murder, torture or rape. He said yesterday, everyone I've spoken to has been horrified by it when it's been explained to them. Do you really think that governments right now are not engaged in monstrous tyranny, overturning all convention and morality? Do you think that politicians who take power from the people ever give it all back? Former Supreme Court Justice Lord Sumption, who gave the 2019 Wreath Lectures on Law and the State, has said that the population has little understanding of how dangerous the governance situation is that we are in today. Sumption says that we are already in a police state, the rule of power, not the rule of law. And we should note that draconian fines handed out by police, not courts, have been ruinous for many. He writes, what is a police state? It is a state in which individuals are answerable to the police for the most routine acts of daily life. It is a state in which the police and not the law decide what is allowed. It is a state in which ministers denounce activities of which they disapprove and the police are their compliant instruments. These things have happened in every totalitarian state of modern times. It is an unattractive spectacle. We are fortunate to live in a country with a tradition of ministerial reticence, the rule of law and sensitive policing. We are unfortunate to live at a time of national hysteria when that tradition is being cast aside and every one of these classic symptoms of a police state can be seen all around us. The lockdown regulations confer powers of enforcement which no policeman should have in a society with even the most basic standards of governance. They authorise the police to give out orders to members of the public if they, quotes, consider that they are out of their homes without a, quotes, reasonable excuse. 
If they consider that two people are together without a good reason, they can separate them by force. They do not have to be right or even reasonable. The justification for this tyranny, of course, moving on to the second of the citrips, was the virus. One could forgive some initial panic when there was room for doubt over its lethality. If it had been the Black Death, then draconian measures might have been justifiable. It is not. Fatality rates for all but the most vulnerable and aged are, according to the CDC's data, in line with the bad flu season. People who have had the illness, in passing latest stats show that 40% of Sweden has antibodies, have to remain locked down and masked and following all the rules despite their immunity. This fear, as we know, is kept going by two devices, COVID cases and COVID deaths. COVID cases come from PCR tests. A PCR test result is labelled a COVID case, defying all medical convention that doctors diagnose the meaning of any medical test results in the context of their assessment of the patient. And counting deaths within a month, it was three months in the UK, as COVID deaths. Astonishingly, the authorities will not reveal the number of PCR cycles, although this is believed to be in the 40s rather than the mid-20s, which even Fauci recommends. As PCR is an amplification, its inventor, by the way, said it was never designed to be a test, 40-plus cycles creates exponentially more positives than 20-plus. Furthermore, all medical tests are designed to be done on symptomatic people. The false positive rate goes through the roof if they are used on healthy people. Thirdly, as per the odd expose, the test labs have poor protocols and procedures and errors are rife. As to COVID deaths, you can have a test, probably false positive, and if you get run over by a bus a month later, you will be recorded as a COVID death. Nevertheless, all the media, even the lockdown skeptic site today, reported parrot fashion, the so-called 100,000 COVID deaths in the UK. Judging by CDC's other data, actual deaths from COVID, as opposed to with COVID, which is rife in hospitals, or after a false positive, are no doubt a fraction of that. In these circumstances, only total deaths are meaningful, but here we must beware the fact that essential medical services have been all but withdrawn for far more deadly conditions. To quote one example I saw today, urgent breast cancer referrals were down by 33% last year. The media, of course, have been the vehicle for creating fear. The BBC called 2020's death toll the worst since the Second World War. Sky News said death tolls were unprecedented. You can imagine, if you're the kind of person that just follows the mainstream media, what you'll be thinking about this threat. Indeed, the overall number of deaths in Britain during 2020 was higher than any year in the 20th century, apart from 1917. But then, so was the population. The Daily Telegraph, in one of its few rare moments stepping away from fear-baiting, published an analysis by its science editor containing an astonishing stat that quotes, Since the 1880s, just 18 years, one eight years, out of the last 140, have had a lower death rate than 2020 when adjusted for population growth. Or, put another way, of the last 140 years, 2020 is the 122nd lowest pro rata. Now, of course, life expectancy and other factors have changed. However, the basic point is clear in this crude statistics that there is no catastrophic loss of life in the UK. Equally, the last mortality.org stats I saw adjusted for deaths per 100,000 in Germany appeared to show that 2020 was one of the less fatal years out of the past five. Moving on, finally, in our sitrep to the consequences of government actions. They're catastrophic. Just looking at the economic ones, there's been the greatest transfer of wealth in history of mankind. Note also that no cost-benefit analyses of government actions have been calculated. You simply could not get away with this in the business world, taking actions without evaluating the costs. This is one reason I see the real crisis right now as being cultural and governance. State government standards are, to use a technical term, 
shite and wouldn't be accepted in business. According to the International Labour Organization, 93% of the world's workers reside in countries with some form of workplace closure measures in early 21. The loss of working hours in 2020 compared to 2019, they say, amounted to the equivalent of an astonishing quarter of a billion full-time jobs, four times worse than the global financial crisis in 2009, whose impact took a decade to unravel, and of course in passing was so key to the creation of fintech. 33 million more people are now unemployed, and 81 million are, quotes, inactive, to use the ILA's phrase. Lost labour income before support, which is incredibly patchy in some places, has been $3.7 trillion. Meanwhile, according to a report this week by Oxfam called the Inequality Virus, it notes that the combined wealth of the world's 10 richest men has risen by over half a trillion dollars from mid-March to the end of 2020. I'm not keen on the identity politics in the following statements, but I include it as it underlines the irony of who are the biggest virtue singlers. Rising inequality means it could take at least 14 times longer for the number of people living in poverty to return to pre-pandemic levels that it took for the fortunes of the top 1,000 mostly white male billionaires to bounce back. A tweet I saw said, hey, here's an idea. Now we've shut down small businesses so Walmart and friends can make all the profits. What about we switch sides and shut down the mega co's for six months and let small businesses make all the profit? A suggestion, of course, that will never be taken up. A local small delicatessen, so small it only allows two people in at a time, had to close and be deep cleaned as a customer who had visited later had a positive COVID test. The shopkeeper and his assistant had to self-isolate for two weeks. Of course, this never once happened at supermarkets. Talking to the checkout ladies at Waitrose, they confirmed this. And of course, the chance of someone having had a positive test and visited a supermarket is 100%. As they said to me, it's outrageous how small shops are being treated. Oxfam's PR release states, Oxfam's report shows how the rigged economic system is enabling a super-rich elite to amass wealth in the middle of the worst recession since the Great Depression, while billions of people are struggling to make ends meet. It reveals how the pandemic is deepening long-standing economic, racial and gender divides. The executive director of Oxfam International said, We stand to witness the greatest rise in inequality since records began. The deep divide between the rich and poor is as proving to be as deadly as the virus. Rigged economies are funneling wealth to a rich elite who are riding out the pandemic in luxury, while those on the front line of the pandemic, shop assistants, healthcare workers and market vendors, are struggling to pay the bills and put food on the table. This is why I call it neo-feudalism, a phrase which to me describes the recreation, albeit this time on a global scale, of an astronomically wealthy, tiny few barons with, apart from some knights and country squires, the rest of the population reduced to neo-peasantry. Back to FS. It's perhaps even worse than neo-feudalism as a result of currency. The US M1 money supply has risen by a staggering 70% over the past 12 months. The IMF stats show government borrowing increasing from 3.9% to 12.7% in 2020. Government debt is at levels never seen outside wartime. By the end of 2019, in the UK, quantitative easing had reached £425 billion, with the Bank of England owning around a third of the entire stock of government debt. Since lockdown, however, QE has gone into overdrive, surging another £450 billion. What does money mean when one part of government spends it and another prints it? History is replete with consequences. The current situation warns the US Government Accountability Office is, quote, unsustainable. Not that this ever stops Congress and its never-ending pork barrelling. The recent payment to US citizens, which after much wrangling was increased from 600 bucks to 2000 cost each citizen, according to the calculation I saw, well over 3000 It's almost like democracy has gone wrong. 
undermined from within by dry rot and woodworm, which are bringing the whole building crashing down. And that's before we even mention the collapse of Western values, equality of treatment before the law being a prime example. Marxist organisations like Antifa, BLM, XR get police kneeling or looking the other way. Ordinary citizens who protest against lockdown have been tyrannically treated and beaten up across the West. But you know all the, the above. Having said that, having to compile it into a few paragraphs is dead depressing. And that's without mentioning the Goebbels like MSM, propagandists not journalists, and having a few West Coast billionaires not only decide what you can say and cannot say online, but either jumping the shark or ringing the bell for the New World Order by deplatforming the sitting President of the United States, a man who had just got some 70 million votes. And that's not to mention statue toppling, riots and looting across America, heavily promoted, justified by one party and its MSM cronies, defunding of the police with consequent sawing murder rates and all other cultural Marxist phenomena we have witnessed. As a former fund manager, I'm quite happy taking bets on the future, and you wouldn't have to give me long odds to take my money on this being the end of Western civilization and the start of a new dark age for the continent and the Anglosphere. Plenty of tweeters have dug out their copies of 1984 and A Brave New World, which have proven to be more guidebooks than fiction. Anyway, that's the sit rep. We all know the sit rep. Let's climb out of the trenches of the mud, wash ourselves down, and head off to some dusty old books in the library. As I think we shall see, although we've all been shocked by 2020, commentators have for a long time been pointing out important threads which wove together to make up our tapestry. So let's start with the most simple, most straightforward predicting of all this. Oswald Spengler's Decline of the West was published a century ago. In it, he took a cyclical look at eight high cultures, of which European was the latest, and identified what he saw as the key patterns in their development. As with all top-down approaches to history, this never goes down well with academics, but that's their loss. It's what I call a picture-versus-pixels category error. I can show you a picture and you can correctly point out that various the pixels are wrong. You are right, but nevertheless, someone else could still tell that the picture is a horse, or a naked lady, even with many pixels wrong. So sure, Spengler wrote a century ago, much is now dated or inaccurate, some of it's plain curious, for example every culture having its metaphysical er symbol of which Europe's was infinite space, we shall gloss over, but more importantly from a non-academic perspective he gets some major things right. Spengler forecast the rise of what he called Caesarism. Spengler had conceived his ideas pre-First World War and finished the first volume of two in 1918 himself dying in 1936. His Caesarism did not relate to Hitler, whom he thought a common fellow, but to much longer timescales. In particular, in his four-season model of civilization, he had more in mind that from 2000 onwards we would be in the winter phase of European civilization. An interesting remark I saw in 2020 was by actor Lawrence Fox, who formed the Reclaim Party to reclaim British values from the Woken politicians. He tweeted, They are what they accuse you of. This is so passive right now. The real fascists in the US, it appears to me, are of course the so-called anti-fascists. In the same way, the media propagandists never stopped framing Trump as a dictator, and yet they and the social media barons were utterly dictatorial. Trump himself let down his more maggery, QE followers when he failed to cross the Rubicon, drain the swamp, or even pardon Assange or Snowden. The utter sweeping under the carpet of the shocking masses of evidence of electoral fraud on an unprecedented industrial scale rather follows Lawrence Fox's maxim, they are what they accuse you of. Of course, all the media say it doesn't exist, you'll get kicked off from major social media platforms for saying it, and in polite company, and even in the UK, most of polite society accepts the mainstream media and Democrat narrative. Every UK paper published every day for four years orange-round bad stories, it didn't matter whether you read The Guardian or The Telegraph, 
And as far as I could see, not one UK media outlet even mentioned the landmark case of Texas and many other states against the offending states. As someone put it, if there was a fraction of this evidence that the Las Vegas gambling machines were rigged, there would be a huge investigation. Spengler, back to his foresight, believed that democracy would be subverted by money and that media is simply the means by which money operates and controls a democratic system. Well said, that man. Oh, by the way, talking of US uh, technology, I saw that Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, is buying Dominion voting machines for London. Nice touch, especially back to the slot machines given Dominion's nudge feature. Clearly, after the shock of Brexit and Trump, the elites aren't taking chances of getting the wrong results that they don't like in the future. Spengler argues that the spiritual values of the West are being sacrificed for material gain. Pretty inarguable, I say, in a post-Gordon Gecko system where money is the new god and global oligarchs set themselves up as gods ruling over everything from 1920s-style Marxist revolutionary groups to the CDC and the WHO. These guys, in passing, couldn't do it on their own. They need, in Lenin's phrase, useful idiots. Spengler writes, quotes, It is the tragic comedy of the world improvers and freedom teachers' desperate fight against money that they are ipso facto assisting money to be effective. The very notion of a free press he describes as an oxymoron. The press is owned and thus serves the interest of the owners. And these days, the oligarchs who bung them a few million for this or that project, thereby ensuring blanket positive coverage. When did you ever see the likes of a Soros or a Gates or a Koch brothers criticised in the mainstream media? The so-called free press does not spread free opinion. In Spengler's term, it generates opinion. And as the media has become, quotes, social, unquotes, looks to me, once again, the antithesis, it's anti-social media, the media barons serving the interests of capital now include one guy who looks like an android and another who looks like a hobo who, along with one or two others, created the year in which big tech became the Ministry of Truth. Let's dive into the useful idiots of the elite's revolution, the ones that around the world are given a free pass by the police. John Gray wrote an excellent article comparing the woke to millenarians. The woke have no vision of the future, he writes, in Unheard. As some conservative commentators have observed, there are striking similarities between woke militants and the Bolsheviks who seized power in 1917. Having noted differences, he goes on to say, nevertheless, Bolsheviks and woke militants do have some things in common. In late 19th century Russia, under the influence of their progressive parents, a generation of educated young people was convinced of the illegitimacy of the Tsarist regime. Dostoevsky's Demons, 1871, is a vivid chronicle of the tragic and farcical process by which progressive liberals discredited traditional institutions and unleashed a wave of revolutionary terror. Not only Tsarism, but any form of government came to be seen as repressive. As one of Dostoevsky's characters put it, quotes, I got entangled in my data. Starting from unlimited freedom, I conclude with unlimited despotism. Rejecting old-fashioned liberal values as complicit in oppression and essentially fraudulent, they extend their power not by persuasion, but by social marginalising and economically ruining their critics. As in the show trials orchestrated by Lenin's disciple Stalin and Mao's struggle sessions, woke activists demand public confession and repentance from their victims. Like the communist elite's woke insurgents aim to enforce a single worldview by the pedagogic use of fear. The rejection of liberal freedoms concludes with the tyranny of the righteous mob. Back to Spengler. Spengler also notes, and do not forget he's 
not just reviewing Europe, but more than a handful of civilizations on different continents over thousands of years, that the greater the concentration of wealth in individuals, the more the fight for political power revolves around questions of money. This is super recognizable in the created hysteria and panic that many of the populace feel as a result of distorted so-called news. Spengler writes, the electrical news service keeps the waking consciousness of whole people and continents under a deafening drumfire of theses, catchwords, standpoints, scenes, feelings, day by day and year by year. He wrote that a century ago. You see what I mean about the deep roots of our current malaise. To Spengler's point that the media generates narratives, we should note in passing the turn of the century Italian political theorist Mosca. He taught that all states are run by elites who subdue their subjects with illusions, and that public opinion is a result of their illusions, not a cause of their actions. The peasant in ancient Egypt wouldn't want to dethrone the pharaoh as the pharaoh's father he knew to be the sun god, and removing a pharaoh would surely bring down ruin from the sun god. All modern regimes are Orwellian thought control regimes. A so-called free press has performed a similar role in the US elections, thinks even Fox calling for Arizona, to Pravda in USSR elections. Edward Bernays, the father of the all-pervasive PR industry, writing in his book Propaganda, quotes, The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organised habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in a democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds are moulded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested, largely by men we have never heard of. In almost every act of our daily lives, whether in the sphere of politics or business, in our social conduct or our ethical thinking, we are dominated by the relatively small number of persons who understand the mental processes and social patterns of the masses. It is they who pull the wires which control the public mind. This was amplified to the ever-widening spheres of state activity, and CIA director William Casey made clear his perspective to Reagan. Quote, well, now our disinformation program is complete when everything the American public believes is false. Unquote. Spheres of influence keep widening, and the state, having taken over education, now takes over health. We've seen the catastrophic effect of that in 2020. Far fewer people would have died if medicine was run by doctors, not politicians. The politicisation of hydrochloroquine, in particular, is a shocker, and will be in future textbooks under Trump derangement syndrome, comma, evidence of. The CIA is also famous for inventing the phrase conspiracy theory and to ensure that anything that got too far away from the state line and too near the truth could be rubbished. It's met all those criteria of late, although the meme that sticks most in my mind from last year was a picture of a woman holding a placard which said, the real conspiracy theory is the idea that the government really cares about you, not themselves, and that healthcare companies that make money when you're sick want to make you healthy. The latter point is certainly made by the lack of action over raising vitamin D levels of the population which have a high correlation with infection protection. Russia, nowhere near like such an important economic player as the Goebbels media would have you think, and China are all ruled by Caesars and oligarchs. And let us not forget that some time ago Carter said that the US is run by oligarchs. So 2020 changed nothing other than how far the oligarchs are prepared to go in their infinite lust for ever more wealth and power. So, a hundred years after Spengler, we can see that Caesarism appears to be the dominant model in the most powerful countries in the world. In passing, Carter's cabinet was dominated by members of the Trilateral Commission, super important in the growth of technocracy, of which the Great Reset is merely the latest version. For a deeper dive into this, see James Dellingpole's interview on YouTube with Patrick Wood, 
the expert on the history of technocracy. Moving on to our second of three meta-themes, Nietzsche. Books one day will be written on the decline and fall of Europe, but a simple turning point for me is well described by Nietzsche writing in 1882 that God is tot, God is dead, meaning that the Enlightenment had, he felt, made belief in God impossible. Before the hardcore atheists in the audience start leaping out of the chairs, do recall that Christianity is deeply platonic. Plato conceived of his essence of ultimate goodness long before Jesus and Christianity was born. So you can interpret God is tot either in conventional religious terms or in philosophical terms, or for that matter, Jungian mythic terms, and we all live by myths, another tale for another day. Quote from Nietzsche's Gay Science, written a little later. God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? Must we not become gods? Hmm. Well, politicians, oligarchs and the media certainly seem to have crowned themselves as gods. The word elite is self-coined, passim, and these folks who few respect have crowned themselves as the new gods. Nietzsche, even though not exactly the church's greatest fan, thought that this would be highly problematic for European civilization. Quotes, when one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality out from under one's feet. This morality is by no means self-evident. Christianity is a system, a whole view of things, thought out together. By breaking one main concept out of it, the faith in God, one breaks the whole. This morality is indeed by no means self-evident. Religions have had many functions in human history well beyond a simple metaphysical take on life, the universe and everything. One is to embed a common value system and morality. Another is as a unifying centripetal force. Remove the religion and you remove the common value system and the unifying centripetal force. Nature abhors a vacuum and the question was of simply what would ride into the territory vacated by Christianity? As G.K. Chesterton said, the problem is not that if man does not believe in religion, he will believe in nothing. It is rather that he will believe in anything. Man is a believing creature first and a thinking creature second. Just look online and see how people's thoughts flow from their worldview. Tom Holland in his hugely well-reviewed 2020 Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, 4.8 stars out of 5 from 263 ratings on Amazon, amazing, elaborates clearly that such matters as secularism, humanism and human rights are all, roughly speaking, Christianity without God slash Jesus. Even if, like me, you are no believer in Jesus' divinity, we would surely associate the value of compassion and forgiveness with him and the whole New Testament canon. What do we see in the woke? We see them setting themselves up as Old Testament God, judging and damning for eternity, banishing from social media, doxing, cancelling. If this is our brave new world, I'd rather have the Christian one back with its compassion, forgiveness and atonement. Even though I spent my theology lessons at school being its biggest critic. Be careful what you wish for, eh? Picking up on Nietzsche and Holland, we have transitioned from Christianity to a kind of de-religious Christianity to now, for at least the most vo vocal and militant, into a kind of anti-Christianity. Another example of this process is that, freed from biblical teachings that greed is a sin, with the advent of so-called neoliberalism in the 1980s, profit as the new god became the thing. Ethicless corporatism is the thing that leads plenty on the left to rail against capitalism, thereby throwing all private enterprise, ethically good or ethically bad, under the bus. 
Another proponent of cyclical theories of history is the amazingly lifed Petirim Sorokin. Just as a tiny snip of his life, he was an illiterate artisan in 19th century Russia when young, sentenced to death by the Tsar. He was later a member of Kerensky's social revolutionary government, later still sentenced to death once more by the Bolsheviks, reprieved by Lenin, who offered him a job but later exiled him, and then later he established Harvard's sociology department. Some life, eh? In later life he tended his azaleas. Well, after all that you would, wouldn't you? Sorokin wrote that civilizations of three phases, ideational, idealistic, and sensate. Taking America, it was quite clearly ideational at the time of the Founding Fathers. Idealistic for quite some time, but as over my lifetime moved into sensate and materialistic. The narrative is all about consumption and materialism. Or rather it was. Right now the US and the rest of the West catches the US's colds, has the energy of Shiva, the destroyer of worlds. Sorokin did not believe decline was inevitable. Harold Brown, writing in 1996 in his book, writes, Sorokin's analysis has proved so reliable that virtually every detail of Sorokin's predictions has been fulfilled. That is, except for his hopeful expectation that our culture will finally find the way out of its system-wide crisis and instead of a fiery dies irae, day of wrath, will experience a new dawn. Changes of direction are possible and the future of any particular society is not foreordained. Brown was an evangelical and thus favouring a return to Christianity as the antidote for these crises. And he was writing last century, long before Orange Man Bad. Moving on from the late 19th century and the early 20th century, let's move to the late 20th century and choose an American writer who was completely on the money at a practical level. American professor Christopher Lash, 1932-1994, wrote five books, two of which we will touch on now. The first, which was deeply influential on Carter and his Crisis of Confidence speech, was The Culture of Narcissism, American Life in an Age of Diminishing Expectations in 1979. This explores the roots and ramifications of the normalising of pathological narcissism in the 20th century. Think LinkedIn profiles, no room for false modesty there. Its central assertion is that Americans have isolated themselves from the past and for that reason have lost a sense of responsibility for posterity. As Wikipedia says, Lash proposes that since the Second World War, post-war America has produced a personality type consistent with clinical definitions of pathological narcissism. This pathology is not akin to everyday narcissism, a hedonistic egoism, but with clinical diagnoses of narcissistic personality disorder. He would certainly have seen his proof of his thesis in today's social media and emotion-centric feelings and lashing out at opposing ideas rather than debating them. This emotionalism, this more feelings, all too easily hits tips into hystericism. We live in an age of hysteria, an age of moral panic. Not this time about witches, but it has the same energy today, the same drive to destroy people's lives. Nor this time about reds under the bed, but Nazis all over it. Emotionalism is, of course, the inversion of the age of reason, that generative principle of the Renaissance and European progress. If the age of reason is turned into the age of emotion, then we truly are in terminal decline. Certainly, if one looks at any public or private debate into lockdowns, face masks, fatality rates, election frauds, policy, you name it, they're all dominated by emotion and a priori belief, with little reference to the actual science, where the data is pretty much conclusive if you're prepared to spend the time digging for it on most of these topics. Another consequence of emotionalism is safetyism. If you're over-emotional, then, especially under a flood of state propaganda, it is no surprise if you demand to be kept safe. The trick of every tyrant over time has been to say, oh look, scary dangerous monster. Oh my God, please save me. Okay, if you insist. In terms of the decline 
or right now collapse of the West into tyranny. Narcissism is now even enshrined in law, with the ever-expanding hate speech laws defined by whether somebody takes offence, i.e. you have broken the law of the land if somebody takes offence at you. If somebody takes offence, that's, that's their very personal thing. It can be narcissistic things, very emotive thing. In the case of Count Dankula's infamous prank of teaching his pug dog to do a Nazi salute, in which he states a number of times that this is a stupid prank to upset his girlfriend, the police halted around a lot of people before finding someone who was prepared to be offended and thus enabling them to prosecute him. A small if high profile example of the dry rot in the fabric of Western civilization, Dankula has never worked again. Every time he came near to getting a job, he was cancel cultured. We live in an age of critarchy, ruled by lawyers, not by the rule of law. And as we have seen in many countries, courts have become experts at looking the other way when the establishment elite doesn't want a certain answer and looking the other when it does, whether it be Dankula or the US elections. A prime example in the UK is Simon Dolan's crowdfunding case against the UK government, which, unlike Gina Miller, got nowhere near the Supreme Court and took many months not to get there. When it did get there, the government's barrister argued amazingly, and talk about two fingers to the people, that it is, quote, absurd to suggest that UK schools have been closed. Try telling that to the millions of school kids who were told by their school not to come in. Before turning to Lash's second book, let me quote from Peter Hitchens on YouTube in his conversations with former Australian Deputy PM John Anderson on the nature of modern revolution. Hitchens says, Revolution is now no longer conducted by a seizure of the railway station, barracks and police station and telephone exchange, but by a seizure of the university, schools and television studio and the newspaper office, and that's how it's done. An enormous accelerated change in every aspect of our society has occurred since 1997. Back to Lash. I was going to call this episode the revolution of the elite and the betrayal of democracy, but I couldn't be bothered engaging with the permanently deranged online who are ready to be hysterical about everything they see. The title would have been a homage to Lash's second book that I wish to refer to, The Revolt of the Elites and the Betrayal of Democracy, which in itself is a homage to Ortega's 1930 The Revolt of the Masses. Ed West, in his article, The Book That Predicted 2020, was in praise of the prescience of Lash's work, published posthumously. Across the US and around the world, graduates and young professionals took to the streets, leading a bizarre anti-revolution in which immigrant shops were ransacked and working-class neighbourhoods forced to defend themselves from violent, college-educated protesters and their allies. Here was a revolution backed by almost all billion-dollar businesses and public institutions by the US presidency, and whose leaders had almost nothing to say about poverty or unemployment. Their demands were for more diversity and racial equality, already sacred ideas among the cognitive elite, all of it accompanied by bizarre quasi-religious public declarations of faith. It was the revolt of the elites. Lash himself wrote an article in November 94 entitled The Revolt of the Elites. Have they cancelled their allegiance to America? It sets into context also the much wider completion of Gramsci's long march through the institutions which has produced such a complete cultural revolution. Lash writes, when Ortega y Gasser published The Revolt of the Masses in 1930, he could not have foreseen a time when it would be more appropriate to speak of a revolt of the elites. Writing in the era of the Bolshevik Revolution, the rise of fascism, in the aftermath of a cataclysmic war that had torn Europe apart, Ortega attributed the crisis of Western civilization to the political domination of the masses. In our time, however, the chief threat, and don't forget this is 25 years ago, in our time, however, the chief threat seems to come not from the masses, but from those at the top of the social hierarchy, 
the elites who control the international flow of money and information, preside over philanthropic foundations and institutions of higher learning, manage the instruments of cultural production and thus set the terms of public debate. Members of the elite have lost faith in the values, or what remains of them, of the West. For many people, the very term Western civilization now calls to mind an organised system of domination designed to enforce conformity to bourgeois values and to keep the victims of patriarchal oppression, women, children, homosexualities, people of colour, in a permanent state of subjection. In a remarkable turn of events that confounds our expectations about the course of history, something that Ortega never dreamt of has occurred, the revolt of the elites. And this was over two decades before Hillary's infamous deplorables comment, and over a decade before then Prime Minister Gordon Brown was caught saying about a voter who'd questioned him over East European immigration, she's just a sort of bigoted woman who said she used to vote Labour. Back to Lash's article. When confronted with the resistance to these initiatives, members of today's elite betray the venomous hatred that lies not far beneath the smiling face of upper middle class benevolence. They find it hard to understand why their hygienic conception of life fails to command universal enthusiasm. In the United States, Middle America, a term that has both geographical and social implications, has come to symbolise everything that stands in the way of progress. Family values, mindless patriotism, religious fundamentalism, racism, homophobia, retrograde views on women. Middle Americans, as they appear to the makers of educated opinion, are hopelessly dowdy, unfashionable and provincial. Simultaneously arrogant and insecure, the new elites regard the masses with mingled scorn and apprehension. Of course, as we saw in every country in 2020, with countless examples, the Covid rules are for the little people. The elite exempt themselves, as unlike the little people, they can always judge for themselves. Anyway, the 2020 election put paid to those little people the elites despise. Or did it? 70-odd million Americans seem pretty unimpressed and unconvinced by blatant election shenanigans. Mox said, The ideas of the ruling class are in every epoch the ruling ideas, i.e. the class which is the ruling material force of society is at the same time its ruling intellectual force. So, we now live in a world where the one true religion, woke, has an ever-growing canon and woe betide you if you don't keep up. Long since past the control of language, we're now into the control of behaviour. Don't want to wear a mask as the evidence is that they are bad for you? Unacceptable. Want to see your parents? Unacceptable. Want to go to a funeral or a wedding? Unacceptable. Want to go to a pub? Unacceptable. Any sense that you are an adult, unable to make your own decisions about your own life, has gone out the window. We are infants in a school run by tyrannical teachers who know far better than us what we should or shouldn't do. We are farm animals owned by oligarchs and the state and told what to think by the mainstream media. A thousand years or more of the English and Anglosphere's development of ideas of liberty from tyranny. John Locke's 17th century formulation of the rights of man's being God-given have been binned. You are now the property of your government, who controls you more fully than any church ever did. You only have to go there on Sundays after all. And woe betide you if you dare protest. The state will show you itself in its true glory by beating the crap out of you for your own benefit and pour encourager les autres not to protest, of course. Before we wrap up with some small perspective <laughs> and making sure you're not all reaching for the gin bottle or the intravenous volume, here's a quote from musician Nick Cave, writing in 2019. I tend to become uncomfortable around all ideologies that brand themselves as the truth or the way. This not only includes most religions, but also atheism, radical bipartisan politics, or any system of thought, including woke culture, that finds its energy in self-righteous belief and suppression of contrary systems of thought. 
Regardless of the virtuous intentions of many woke issues, it is its lack of humility and the paternalistic and doctrinal sureness of its claims that repel me. So, that's our quick canter through the ideas of, in particular, Spengler, Nietzsche and Lash, with a technical hat tip en passant to the work of Patrick Wood about technocracy that I referenced but didn't have time to cover in more detail. Time now to turn to some more practical considerations. How the hell do we all live through this without losing our sanity? That's no joke in the slightest. An article in the UK this week said that more children who are utterly de minimis risk from COVID yet are suffering most as they miss out on one-off vital experiences in their development and life are being admitted to hospital with mental health problems than physical health problems. And that's something of a euphemism. Another article I saw was talking about overdoses, terrible self-harming and the like. I mentioned at the outset that these three issues are the roots of our problem. I guess scholarship candidates amongst you might like to ponder what that antidote is. To Spengler, do you think Europe's in terminal decline? What's the impact for where you are in the world? Maybe it'll benefit you, depending on where you are. To Nietzsche, will European civilization dissolve without a common mentality? Will it fissure and fracture, as America appears to be doing, into competing sets of principles? And to Lash, how do cultures reverse away from narcissism, emotivism and the revolt of the elite? Right, that having all been done, let's give ourselves some perspective wrap up the episode with a couple of quotes from the past along the lines of mm, the things are different but also they're similar. The first, let's tie in both the long-term nature of the generation of Western civilization and also the helter-skelter pace of history. This is Churchill writing in 1930 in his memoir My Early Life. Churchill drew attention to the estrangement of his society from the legacy and the values of the past, something that I can relate to. Churchill writes, I wonder often, I won't do the Churchill accent, I wonder often whether any other generation has seen such astounding revolutions of data and values as those through which we have lived. Scarcely anything, material or established, which I was brought up to believe was permanent and vital has lasted. Everything I was sure of, or was taught to be sure, was impossible has happened. And to put that into context, 1930, of course, was long before he was Prime Minister in the Second World War, and long before the dissolution of his beloved British Empire. A second quote, more recent, from J.R.R. Tolkien in 1969. The spirit of wickedness in high places is now so powerful and medi-headed in its incarnations that there seems nothing more to do than personally to refuse to worship any of the Hydra's heads. So, having spent most of this episode talking about key roots of our current problems, that's a couple of quotes to put into context that, had we all lived in the past, we wouldn't have been talking about the COVID and the COVID governance problems, but we would have been talking about others. So, having covered all of this intellectual ideas and maps of the meta-territory by people all of whom long, died long before the elite revolution of 2020, what balm for our souls can we offer? My former in-laws lived through the period of Czechoslovakia being run by both the Nazis and then the Soviet Union. Neither of these were a picnic at all. Life went on, however, and the secret there was to focus on the local, on the personal, on the familial. If you ignored the politics, it would, by and large, ignore you. Exactly the same type of totalitarianism the elite are executing now. Of course, tyranny is very inefficient. The state being a vast monopoly is very inefficient. Incompetence, cronyism, and the corruption that having power brings to politicians and the permanent state will eventually be its downfall, as it always has been. So what should one do in the meantime? Status is no defence. Even the likes of former Supreme Court Judge Lord Sumption have been attacked vituperously. Keep your head down and obey those who consider themselves your betters, and you'll have a quiet life. Just a pity if you're young, out of work, or in need of healthcare for anything other than a coronavirus. In the long run, all tyrannies fail, 
All elites fall out amongst themselves. All their stupid plans fall to dust. It just might, like the Japanese shogunate or the USSR, be quite some weight while it happens. Watching the kettle, as I found, definitely makes it seem even longer till it boils. Concentrating on the personal, getting thinner, fitter, learning something you don't know or an instrument are all ideas that no doubt have crossed your mind many times. I think one helpful framing is, what within these far tighter boundary conditions can I end up having done that I wouldn't have perhaps done otherwise? Look for that silver lining. None of us want clowns to come into our lives, but if they do, and when they've passed you're left with a silver lining, at least that's some compensation. In terms of understanding, you can learn more than you currently know about who you are. I mentioned Locke. His idea of a blank state has been debunked thoroughly by now, but we are culturally blank slates. As a baby and a toddler, we're all conditioned by the societies into which we are born. Tradition is a key word here. Tradition is your birthright from your ancestors, most of whom were dirt poor and struggled mightily to leave the next generation something slightly better than they inherited. You and I have inherited tradition, and we need to work hard to preserve what we find is valuable in it and to improve upon the bits that no longer fit the modern world or due for an upgrade anyway, and then pass it on to the next generation. Indeed, in a world of the one-party state, same game, same trough, simply two different jersey on those with the snouts in the trough. The actual political conversation, which never takes place in modern politics, is between tradition and reform. The society you are born into becomes part of you. Rejecting it is far harder than you might ever imagine. In fact, one of the quotes, white liberal, unquotes, basic errors, is that they think they are rejecting their society. But in doing so, they are, in Jungian terms, possessed far more by the shadow side of that society than they would ever imagine. Wokists' attitudes to people of sub-Saharan ancestry remind me of nothing more than Victorians' paternalistic attitudes to the same people, the white man's burden. By decolonizing, they act as neo-colonialists, treating whole people as if they're in need of their paternalistic care. Equally, males like Trudeau or the headmaster of Eton, who bang on about toxic masculinity, embody the very toxic masculinity they claim to see in others and act archetypally toxically towards them. But back to your right, we're all born into societies that have good elements and bad elements. By understanding these properly, we understand ourselves better. The line between good and evil runs through the centre of all our hearts. Learning more about what worked well in our societies, in our economies, we can ensure that the baby isn't thrown out with the bathwater. Once this Maoist revolution and year zero is complete, for sure the wokeisters would, like me looking back on the Christianity I spent so much time dissing at school, think, actually there was rather a lot of good in that and it's a darn sight better than what came after. Right, well done. You survived it all. The giveaway. Ha! <laughs> you certainly deserve something having listened to, to all this. I hope you found some of these authors interesting. Last year I announced a giveaway of three months worth of board mentoring for the first three folks to contact me. That proved very successful for the lucky winners who were kind enough to give me some wonderful testimonials. In thinking how I could light a candle rather than complain about the darkness in 2021, I've set up a Clarity.fm account which enables anyone to set up a call with me on three topics. Designing and creating an entrepreneurial board, gaining clarity around FS and fintech, and thirdly, C-suite mentoring, all of which I've been involved in, one way or other, for a long time. I set up the profile on Clarity's minimal acceptable rate of $1 a minute. However, for listeners of this podcast, I can present you with a special VIP code which will discount this for the first dozen down to zero. So, if you want up to half an hour's free conversation slash mentoring on the topic of boards, FS or FinTech or C-suite mentoring or office purpose business mentoring in general perhaps, then contact me via this special VIP link, which is clarity.fm slash Mike Ballyman slash LFP. I'll 
spell that out. C-L-A-R-I-T-Y dot F-M slash M-I-K-E-B-A-L-I-M-A-N slash F-P. I offer, of course, no guarantees that I can help. However, I have a little more experience than I did when I started this working log some 38 years ago, and I'm happy to share. Anyway, 2020 was an odd year, and this was appropriately an odd show. Next episode, I shall be very relieved, and no doubt you may be too, to get back to the far easier game of playing ping pong with my guests. So much easier than having to sit down and write 10,000 words. Live long and prosper, and may despite everything, 2021 turn out to have been a great year for you and yours. Thanks for listening. If you have any challenges or needs with your unlisted company board, get in touch with me at mike at londonfintechpodcast.com. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride Watch the fire light, dance with me, watch the fire light.